Hello again. It's another episode of the Western Literature Podcast. I'm your host, teacher of this class, Robbie. Yay! All right. What I want to talk about today is uh, in response to the many thoughts that came up in my mind and rambling around in my mind ever since class on Friday, September 28th, and really enjoyed the exercises that you did in class today, the little cram exercise with Penelope's Penelope, Atwood's version of Penelope and Homer's version of Penelope or Odysseus in Homer's version or in Atwood's version. Really enjoyed that. But also really thought the, the uh, journals that you discussed um, written by a couple of your classmates and provoked really good conversation of thought, reflection. And I just wanted to respond in a few ways to some things that I've been thinking. So one of the, the things that's going on in Atwood's story as a postmodern deconstruction of an earlier narrative is that it raises questions about the assumptions of the earlier text or the earlier narrative that people are most familiar with, the Odyssey. The assumptions of the Odyssey seem to be uh, largely patriarchal, perhaps misogynistic, but largely patriarchal. It just is, this culture just is patriarchal. Um, and it doesn't appear that anyone within the world of the Odyssey really does goes to great lengths to question that. Atwood does. Um, in her story, allow her characters, her female characters, the maids and Penelope, to seemingly directly actually question those assumptions of the earlier texts and of the Odyssey. So that when we get Penelope's perspective, we're getting someone who uh, actually feels like they're articulating some pretty modern... um, egalitarian notions of of the world. And then the uh, maids may also uh, be doing that as well. Now, here's the, the thing. I think that's certainly important and legitimate to read texts and look for the assumptions that are just there in the text, to read the Odyssey and to recognize that it looks like everyone, for instance, just assumes that a system where we have certain people who are slave owners and others who are slaves is just the only kind of system that could possibly exist. Nobody in the world of the Odyssey seems to question that assumption. Uh, So that's in Homer's Odyssey. No one seems to question that assumption. But it sure seems like in the Penelope, and, and, and so it seems like in the Penelope ad, maybe that uh, the maids do actually question that. So here's the question. Does it make sense? Does it seem like when you're working within a culture, living within a culture, operating within a culture, and everybody just assumes something that uh, you would come to question those assumptions? Does it seem likely that the maids as presented in the Odyssey, would actually question the assumptions of the slave system and of the place of female slaves in that slave system. 
does that makes does that make sense? Would even Penelope question sort of the nature of how marriage works? Would she have thought to to do that? Or like most people, most of us, our cultural assumptions just reside unconsciously in our assumptions. We just assume them to be true and we don't very often question them. So in the Odyssey, uh, we, from a 21st century perspective, we see something there that no one appears to be questioning when we see there are certain characters, certain people who own slaves and others who are slaves. In the world of the Odyssey, it seems perfectly reasonable that some of those slaves would wish that they were not slaves. But in their wishing that they were not slaves, it doesn't seem like they would also come to wish that there was no such system as slavery whatsoever. Now that's the, that's the intriguing thing. Um, certainly at some point, some people question the whole system and the system comes to be questioned by lots of people. And eventually the tide shifts dramatically. And we live now in a world where slavery is just overwhelmingly assumed to be a bad thing by almost everyone. It seems like even in the world of the Penelope ad that's being presented there, uh, that Atwood may allow her characters to question the assumptions, her characters to question the assumptions of their own past culture. And I begin to wonder if that's plausible, right? It makes sense that Atwood would question, question them. It makes sense that you and I would question them. Atwood uses the characters, though, to question the assumptions of the earlier culture. And most people never get to the point where they actually are self-aware enough about their cultural biases that they even question their assumptions and maybe even call for a different, different system to be put in place. So we get these choruses of maids singing uh, in the Penelope ad. Uh, and they're really fascinating the way these, these uh, and really clever the way these chapters of the maids are inserted. Almost always they're responsive to the, the content and themes that are in the preceding chapter as narrated by Penelope. And they very often, Penelope sort of laments about the dream she's been having. And then the maids sing about dreaming. Um, uh, we have chapters like this one. Um, it's Penelope describing in a chapter called the, the well chapters called my marriage and the scar and then the maid and, and she's talking about what it's like to be a princess and you almost get the feeling that she's she has herself as a character deconstructed the system of well royalty and princesses and how marriages are done and arranged and all that and doesn't seem to think much of that way of doing things. Uh, and, 
um, then you get the chorus line, If I Was a Princess, a popular tune on page 51 in chapter 8 of your book. And it's great. But the, the maids, after Penelope sort of whined a little bit, maybe, about life as being a princess, the first maid says, If I was a princess with silver and gold and loved by a hero, I'd never grow old. Oh, if a young hero came a marrying me, I'd always be beautiful, happy, and free. And it's almost as if this really ironic tone that comes through this chorus line pokes fun at how, Penelope, can you complain about being a princess? We're just maids. Um, and it ends with that. It's hope and hope only that keeps us afloat. And there's so much deep sarcasm, I think, in this um, from the maids that how can you possibly be complaining about what's happening in your life, Penelope? You realize we maids, for however bad or rough it is for you, have it way worse. So you can imagine characters thinking such things like, I'm envious of Penelope. Penelope's envious of Helen. The maids are envious of Penelope. Um, but it almost seems like the text goes even further than that and has the characters themselves question the very assumptions of their culture. And I'm, I'm wondering if that is actually plausible. Yes, it's possible that characters would question the assumptions, that characters and people do question the assumptions of their culture. But by and large, most of us just operate with what we assume. So you want to get a little terrifying thought in place. Start imagining a thousand years from now, someone writing the story of our time. What would they deconstruct about our assumptions? What would they, right? What would they question? What would they expose? Like these people operated with that assumption all the time and it just looks so strange and foreign. So yes, deconstructions of texts are really helpful and interesting earlier texts to, but it's also, it's also dangerous and difficult to do well because do we have a plausible Penelope? Well, Atwood's move is simple. She says, now that I'm dead and have been dead for a very long time, not Atwood says, as Penelope say, I know everything. So maybe these things that Penelope is reporting after death were not actually her attitudes while she was alive on Ithaca. Same with the maids. That she wouldn't have thought to deconstruct how she felt about um, the assumptions of her culture. But in death, maybe now that affords you some new knowledge and new feelings about, well, what happened. Maybe that's the move. Maybe that's what happens. But if not, if it's no, what we have is a Penelope who all the way along would have been questioning the assumptions of just the way the, the, the culture works in this very old ancient Greek world. Uh, that makes her extremely incisive and insightful and prophetic. 
And if the maids are able to do the same thing, that's pretty extraordinary too. Um, so that's kind of a rambling musing on uh, what later texts do to earlier texts sometimes to expose assumptions. But it's really, really something that happens quite often. It can be dangerous because you can yank the rug out of the whole thing and then it looks like that earlier text is just absurd. But it's also important to remember that we, we do need to probably do this, even with a text like the Bible. And um, we need to do this because everyone, it seems, in the Bible did just assume a pretty patriarchal world. Everyone, the, the authors of the New Testament seem to assume this. The uh, authors of the New Testament seem to assume a world where there are slaves. Uh, and the Bible isn't written uh, by these authors intending to eliminate the system of slavery. And yet, I think we would all say there is clearly if you understand the teachings of Jesus and the person of Jesus and the heart of Yahweh, uh, a, a strong case to be made that that system that those folks, that Paul himself just assumed, that Luke and John and Mark and Peter and James just assumed, that system that included slavery um, is not to be sanctioned is actually a, a poor one, an evil one. And uh, their assumptions have problems there. And I think we could also uh, continue on with this conversation here and include the conversation about the validity of how texts emerge, how the Odyssey emerges from the oral tradition. Clearly, whoever Homer was, and no one knows, no one even knows if he actually existed. It's just who later Greeks attributed the, the written form of the Odyssey to. Um, but what we know is these narratives, these epics, the nostoi, and this is, we know that the Greeks thought this was the, the, the greatest one that actually did survive, these return stories. Um, these uh, were recited orally. And then Penelope is a character from myth, and who knows where that originated. You'll never get to that. Um, same thing with Odysseus or Telemachus or Calypso or Zeus. or These characters were just there. Homer takes them up, and he's got an agenda. Uh, he wants to tell a story his way, and he does it, and he does it remarkably well. We don't have the other versions that precede him recorded and in print so that we can know what they are. But then we have people continuing the tradition in the aftermath of Homer right on up to this day. And Atwood is just another in a long line. So Homer's is yes, the first printed out version and the only surviving printed out version that we have, and maybe not even the first printed out version of the story of Penelope. We, we could have had other stories written down. They just didn't survive. We don't have them. Um, but clearly, it is very obvious 
that many versions of Odysseus' tale are going around. And Homer himself is aware of that, if I can speak of him as actually a real person and author. He is aware of that in the Odyssey because he uses the singer Demodocus to indicate that there are versions of the story going around and being told and sung out there. So that's just the case, uh, that, that the text flows out from other earlier oral texts or other earlier texts. But that's the case of almost all literature. In fact, I would say that all literature and all writing is provoked by something, some earlier narrative, some earlier story. Um, the earlier narrative or story that provokes Paul, say, to write uh, a, a letter to the Ephesians, we don't have. But it's clear that something prompted him to respond. All of that stuff in the New Testament is responsive. And you can imagine there are stories going around about Jesus when Matthew also is inspired to sit down and write it. Of course, we think Matthew is inspired by God, clearly given. But he's also inspired by, um, and we need to, I need to set down my record of the life of Jesus. And because there are these other oral stories going around and John, the same thing and Luke and Mark, the same thing. All of that stuff in the new Testament is provoked by something, uh, maybe many somethings. They're responsive to other narratives, other oral tales, right? You can imagine that Paul gets word that something is going on in a church at Corinth. Uh, he hears reports, he gets written reports. And then what we have in the Bible, inspired by God, but also inspired by those other narratives, Paul writes, writes a story in response to that, to a very particular context. So even that literature is prompted or provoked by earlier other texts, right? It also alludes to earlier and other texts. It alludes to Old Testament texts, um, Old Testament um, poetry and narratives all the time. So it's it's highly intertextual, the, the Bible is. Um, but all literature really is. All writing really is responsive. Something prompts you to take up your pen or quill or sit before your typewriter or keyboard and write your story or poem. And we shouldn't assume that there was the story and to write back, to rewrite, to offer your version is somehow um, unnecessary or uh, annoyingly wrong. Um, It may be that it can be way off base. It can be propagandistic. It can be um, uh, motivated by uh, uh, hyper agenda, uh, um, hyper radical agendas to try to demonstrate the, the wickedness of the earlier text or whatever, or, or whatever. These, these things could, could happen, but, maybe there are more attempts to actually amplify our understanding of the earlier text. And I think if you read Atwood or any of the poems that we, few poems that we read inspired by the Odyssey, and there's 
endless ones of those, uh, and many, many other novels and later poetry and epic and so on and so forth that take up the, the tale in the Odyssey and allude to it or nod to it and offer interesting insights and interpretations to it. Maybe if we take it in that light, what does this do to help me understand the human story, the great story, the one story, right? The story of human existence and what it means to be human. What does this contribute to that in conversation with one part of that human story, the Odyssey? Uh, maybe if we take it in that spirit, it's much easier to make sense of. That's not a really tidy wrap up to this rambling podcast, but that's what I have to say today. What do you think? I'd love to know your comments. Love if this inspired you to make your own podcast in response or write your own essay in response. Um, that's what it's going on here. We're in the great conversation. We're just a little part of it. We're at the table and I hope you'll um, join the conversation. This is Robbie and the Western Lit Podcast. Another episode signing off.